Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is brought to you by audible.com the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 84 of Oral Delights. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yeah, so welcome to show 84 and what a show. A little bit different in the running order today. Usual, a couple of usual things in there, but some slight changes as well. So listen out for that. I'll give you a little run up of what's happening. The editorial, and the editorial for a few weeks now, is basically going to be me talking about the sofa notes. So trying to get you to come over to the sofa notes. So it's going to be really a little what's happened in last week's sofa notes and would you like to come over and subscribe to that fantastic show so like i say for a few weeks now i'm going to talk about the sofa notes just to build up the the listenership on that show because it is fantastic and it needs to be talked about next up is new titles i'm going to throw in the new titles early on this week three great books there to talk about we've also got a little story by Larry Santuro, and a little introduction as well. So look out for that in the show. This is just fantastic. And it's lovely. Larry always makes like a special effort to do like a little introduction as well. And that is just as important as the story in my eyes. So Larry, thank you for that. Now we're going to come on to the main fiction, which is by David D. Levine, a Nebula-nominated story as well. Then, this is the special bit, we're going to have Amy H. Sturgis doing a little talk, what she actually did for RavenCon. And actually, it's not a little talk. I think it's probably hitting about 45 minutes. But this is like a speech she gave over there, and she recorded for the Starship Sova. So that is something special. (laughs) 
So we'll jump straight in with the editorial. And like I say, it's just really to talk about the sofa notes. Main thing is, I hope you'll go over to either starshipsofa.com or sofanotes.com and subscribe to this show. Each week, you know, and the first week when you kind of you settled off when I started off, you know, you're kind of a little bit nervous. And I was a little bit kind of nervous, you know what I mean? It was like, a, you know, being like a host is rather strange. You've got to make sure everything's going all right. And, you know, and then first one, you know, you're, you're a little bit edgy. But now I'm kind of settled into it there now. And what I'm really enjoying is the debates that are going on, you know, in the kind of science fiction industry and the questions that are getting asked. And it is really turned into a, a great show. And last week's show, we had... Jeremiah Talbot on there, who is Jeremy Talbot, who is the editor of Escape Pod. What's really special, we're having Jeremy on there, two things. <laughs> First thing is, he's given some great insights into how he goes about picking stories for Escape Pod, how you know the, the, the mechanics and the workings of Escape Pod are going on. And the second reason why Jeremy's good is... He's radical in his thoughts, do you know what I mean? And he's not, and he's straight talking and he's not messing around, you know? He's got some very straightforward thinking views on the print industry at the minute, you know, and how it's not working. And it's, it's a dream to listen to him, you know, because it's a breath of fresh air sometimes, you know? He's, he would wipe the slate clean with all the magazines there and start from the ground up, you know, and that's, God, that would rattle some people's cages, something not right. So that's nice to get Jeremy on there because he, he is like a forward-thinking guy with this new internet that's going on. You know, he's got some radical great thoughts about him. We also had on the Guardian writer for Guardian Online, Damien G. Walter. Damien's hails from the UK as well, and Damien's like been reading science fiction and you know it's a science fiction industry inside out you know and it's great to get Damien on board because from a, like a UK perspective you know it's it's nice to have that kind of background you know you can tell you know any kind of award British award or anything like that he's uh, packed with useful information like that and we also had on which was I was so happy to get him on Larry Santuro Lauren Santuro who's wrote Little Girl Down the Way now Larry's a dream to be quite honest the nicest man who can write the horriblest stories in life. <laughs> but honestly, it was a dream to get Larry on, do you know what I mean? Because, it's, it's, you know, I'm not saying he's not technically mine, it's just he hasn't come across Skype too often, you know. And is, is it working, Tony? Is this thing on? Am I thinking you hear us? And it was lovely because Larry's got some great insights into kind of the bygone days, you know, and the thoughts on classic SF and everything like that, and the stories he can, he can relate to and the, and the people he's met in the industry. Do you know that, I was going to say, the guy's been around, well, he has, but in a nice way, you know? And actually, it was, it was a nice show to do with Larry, you know what I mean? It was, it was fun to, be, to have on as well. And what's good is, when we start talking, you know, you never know where the conversation's going to go. And it's, like I say, it's always kind of sci-fi news and related, but sometimes it wanders off in totally different directions. And it's, even for me, when I'm doing the show and when I'm actually listening to it afterwards, you know, and getting the kind of, putting the edits together, which isn't that many, it's, it's like a new show. You know, it's, it's lovely to listen to. You know, and I'm, I, hopefully I'm going to plan this to get as, as big as possible. You know, I'm, the guests I've got lined up there coming on, I, you know, the, the kind of nice size in, in the industry. In a couple of weeks' time, we've got John Joseph Adams coming on, you know, who's probably the top editor in anthologies at the moment. And he'll have some great insights to say. Jeff Vandermeer actually is going to be probably a regular guest on the show. Corey Doctorow would love to come on, so that's good news as well. 
And what I'm finding as well is there's so much news to talk about. You know, you you, you know, you think, oh, there's a new book gets published and, and that's it. But, you know, the kind of the mechanics of the sci-fi industry is fascinating. You know, just like on the literature side of things, you know, there's loads to talk about. And like I say, it's great where the, the conversation wanders off and then we could go down... The nostalgic trip, you know, and visit the, the greats and knock them into shape as we did a couple of weeks ago, which some people, Amy H. Sturgis, just like to have her little say and say, didn't agree with it, you know? <laughs> oh, it's fab. Amy, thank you for that. that. Amy wrote a little column in the forums just expressing that she did not agree and did, Dear sir, to who it may concern. I got one of those letters. <laughs> thank you, Amy. <laughs> So that is Sofa Notes. Honestly, please pop over and join up. Not join up, you know, come and have a listen to it. It would be lovely. So now I'm going to hand you over to Mr. Larry Santuro for his little introduction to his story. Larry, sir, I had a great time on the Sofa Notes with you. You're hopefully you're going to come back. That was fantastic. And I'm sorry we, age was mentioned a couple of times. <laughs> Hi, this is Larry Santuro. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the tale that I'm about to read. I've tried to keep this at least shorter than the story itself. Um, if you've read me or have heard me read some of my material here before, you realize I am not a brief guy. I take my time developing character situation. I, I like to give a story resonance and uh, what do we call it? Um, the aroma, texture, sound, you know, the triangulation of the senses that John Barth talks about teaching. So here we go. There's a kind of ongoing joke among my friends that my titles can be longer than some other people's stories. God screamed and screamed, then I ate him. Uh, what do you know of the land of death? Clown said one night to the haunted boy. She was washing her frock when Winston Churchill came galloping out of the mist. That last one eventually got changed to, I think it was children invisible watching from the great darkness, but you get the idea. Not surprisingly, then, I'm not much for flash fiction. Short tales typically begun, developed, and ended in five to seven hundred words. So I never intended to enter the flash fiction contest at the 2007 World Horror Convention in Toronto. I just went to hear some of my friends read, and I was up in the room slicking my hair and tucking my shirt just before the event, and I remembered a little thing I had written about a year or so ago, one of those things that nudges you when you're doing something else and you just have to put it down. I popped open the computer, I dug through the electrons, and there it was. It was about 1,300 words or so titled, Then Just Dreaming. I read it. Uh, it took more than five minutes to read. The, the contest limits readers to five minutes, and as they say, not a heartbeat longer. Uh, that was one thing, but there was another problem. At first look, the thing felt horribly like one of those shaggy dog tales you write in junior high, things that end with something like, and then I woke up and found it was just a dream. Well, come on, Larry, I said to myself. You could not have written something like that, even just goofing around. So... I reread it, and I realized, no, that's not what it's all about. What it is needs maybe a second or a third reading, but it's a true nightmare. It's one that folds back on its—well, look, I'll let you decide what it is, but my thought at the time was, damn, that is not what flash fiction should be about. Rereading, study, certainly not in a contest. So I trimmed it, read it again. It was still over. 
I trimmed some more. It wasn't hard, even at 1,200 words the, by that time. The story still had some flab in it. I printed it, went down to the lobby. I read over it, crossed out a few more words, and then I just let it go. You're not going to do this, I said to myself. You're just not going to do this. Kept telling myself, you can't do flash fiction. You can't. Hell no. Peter Crowther was one of the judges. So was Ed Bryant. Peter, Ed, and uh, Nancy Kilpatrick was the third. So I'm thinking to myself, Christ, no, you're not going to get up drunk. Did I mention that? It was one of my beer and vodka nights. So I stuck the four pages in my pocket, and I went in to hear my friends read. Some other chums saw me there. Chums chuckled, Santoro at a flash fiction contest, ha! Big laugh. No, no, I said, I'm, I'm just here to watch. Mutually exclusive concepts, Santoro and short fiction. Someone said it. I think I knew who it was. So I sign up. I sit. My name is called. I get up. Uh, the assembled audience call out the traditional starting signal. On your mark, get set, read like a motherfucker. And I read like a motherfucker. It's not that I motor mouth the tale. I just keep it brisk. I begin quickly because I know near the end there's a moment when I need some dead air to give the following some weight. So I establish a pace quick enough to make even a short pause seem like a death watch. Later beats lend themselves to breathless rushing. And so there I do read like a motherfucker. In fact, I make one verbal stumble somewhere along the way, but I keep going. I speak the tale's final word, for the record that word is goddamn, just as the timekeeper puts his hand on my shoulder. I am in, out, and under five by less than a second. The judges retire to confer, we drink and giggle, and they return. I do not take third place, the spot I halfway hoped for, because there had been some, some really good writer-readers. I do not take second, so I figure I'm done. But I do take first place. The world is turvy, topsy-wise. We've fallen into another version of the big all. The prize, well, it's bragging rights, basically, but I am pleased and honored. So here I am bragging. I read like a motherfucker. By the way, this is one of the magical parts of all this. Uh, I have since read this thing aloud one or two times. I've read it aloud to myself here, trying to record this. And I have never since that evening been able to read it in under five. Enjoy. Then, Just a Dream by Lawrence Santoro. Read by Lawrence Santoro. A kid walks late afternoon. All alone, he walks along rail lines. He's walked for miles for as long as he can remember the day he's walked it. Trees push close to the tracks, one side, the other. A graveled drop-off leads to more trees. Pine covers the hillside, down to water, maybe a river, a lake. But something watery is off that side of the tracks and down there. He can smell it, the water, mud, fish, mosquito eggs, that kind of smell rises from that side. It's summer afternoon, late summer, not hot, but warm, nice. No place to go from here but home. The smells, the feel of the gravel way underfoot, the scent of creosote bubbled up from the ties. It smells, yes, smells like home, like near home. He walks easily, not thinking, not looking, then a soft click, a sound that would be metallic if it weren't smothered by leather and the softness of his foot. And he isn't walking, 
Now he looks. The boot his ankle is in is caught in a switch. Jesus Christ. Along some track, middle of nowhere, a guy's walking along alone, and thing just closes. Thump. Like that. It doesn't hurt. It didn't hurt. It simply holds him. Fact is, he couldn't tell if it closed on him or if he just stepped in it and got wedged there. Doesn't matter. Point is, he cannot get out. The line, this spur he's been walking, hasn't been used in... He looks. Well, not for a long time. Grass, small trees, and brush grows between the ties up from the rails, and the rails, they're rusty, like nothing had rolled over them in months, years. So the guy, call him what he is, the kid, is not scared, not right away, not of being run down and shoved to furious pieces by a train. Only thing worries him now is how the hell is he going to get out? How's to get home, to eat? The more he twists his foot, the stucker he is. He laughs at that. (laughs) The stucker. And the switch... That's not moving, not opening. It's holding him like a retriever holds a duck, soft, but that's one duck that is not getting away. Takes him most of the afternoon to realize that, unless someone comes, unless the switch opens, he is part of that track for the duration. Now, the fact that this is most likely an abandoned spur of some out-of-use line is starting to scare the hell out of him. He could die there, a really dull, pointless death. By the time it starts being dark, he is halfway convinced this is a dream. He hopes it is. Anyway, one of those things that once you realize you're just in bed, safe and stupid, you're going to wake up, go down, get you a sandwich and a beer from the PX. He starts to believe the day, the place, the rails, the switch, his foot really are pieces of a dream. He imagines a rabbit. And doesn't a damn rabbit run right across the tracks in the moonlight? He imagines a howling wolf, yep, and a pack beyond the trees to take up the cry, them too. He looks into the now night sky. He just knows a meteor will flash, and one tears a bright silent asshole right across the dipper. He plays with the night, adjusting it. Then he imagines a dinosaur nearby. Nearby. The woods start to creak, to crash, to thunder. Trees groan, then explode. A hundred feet down the line, a shadow, like the world, lumbers from the woods, crosses the track as flesh-wrapped pile-drivers might slip-slide the gravel down into the darkness, the trees and exploding water below. The dream shakes as it passes. Wow, the guy says thinking of what he'd brought into the world. This dream, the damn rail, still shivered. With a shiver, without wanting to, he imagines a train, a metal and fire thing, abroad on this abandoned, this unused spur line. Can't help that. In the distance, the dinosaur slides into the water and bubbles away forever. Into its place slides the sorrow of a steam whistle. In a few moments, pitifully few, the puff and chug of an engine rides the curve of rails. It's coming from ahead. The steel races toward him, the rails that hold him quiver. They breathe against his leg, tightening, loosening, but never giving up on him. He pictures the train. It's an old friend, the train. Black, a steam giant at full blaze, shadow and fire in the night. He sees the length of it. The cars run bright with people, eating, dozing, talking, planning, dreaming. A hundred of them, at least a hundred people, all with places to go, promises to keep, business, things they'll do and undo at the end of their line. And the boy, he is still stuck. He imagines the switch opening, releasing him. 
It does not. He comes quickly now to realize that in this dream, this world, you can't unmake the life you've made. You can't take back the dinosaur, can't rezip the sky, unhop the bunny, unhow the wolf. And the train is near. He thinks, maybe ahead there's a bridge. There is a bridge. Yes, he remembers bridge, and he dreams it out. Dreams the gorge and the bridge across it, a sliver of broken wood, down-bending steel, hanging empty space between the train and his own trapped self. Then, then he thinks maybe, maybe this dream is only the dream of someone, someone on the train. The train heading his way is dreaming this. Maybe he's on board, home from the war, now safe and waking, and the world is soft and too small. It's a compartment of a train. The train. The train. It's night. His leg is asleep. The world is a window, a black mirror with only him and this little rushing room in it. Ahead, the engine whistle blows. They're going so fast that his compartment catches the shriek, devours it, spits it pastward. The whistle blows again. His body presses into the seat at his back. The train screams with stopping, trying to at least. The whistle rushes on, eighty, ninety miles per hour. All the steel and flesh around him strain towards zero, working for stillness in a length of track too small to catch that much quiet. Oh, Christ, what the hell? The young man looks out the window. He wonders, is the bridge out? Ahead. Is there a bridge? A bridge or something else, something on the track. And without thinking, he knows there is. He knows for sure there is a bridge, but does not want to think about it. He knows for sure something else is there. The bridge and something. How high, how long, how deep, how rocky, how intact. And has he left the war, that place? Is this the dream? Could this be the dream? Could this be where he's not? Could this be something he should wake from or not wake from? What the hell would happen if, if this is still not home, not a ride? Then he wakes, and it was a dream. A goddamn... <laughs> New titles. Three new titles this week. One from Orbit, one from Glance, and another one from Orbit. First one up is Sean Williams' Book 3, The Grand Conjunction. This is the Astropolis series. I did, I did the first, the second one. Saturn's Return, Book 1, Earth's Ascendant, Book 2, and then this one, The Grand Conjunction, Book 3. It is coming in round about 316 pages. Riveting, gripping and page-turning fantasy and science fiction. That uh, little plug there. Praise for Astropolis, the Guardian says. Williams renders the passage of eons and the rise and fall of civilizations. Kevin J. Anderson says. A compelling story of personal bravery and loyalty set against a huge backdrop of galactic disaster and the very end of civilization. The very end of civilization! Imri Bergamax is lost. His search for answers has led him up an alley so blind, even his senses of self have become uncertain. Before he can save the galaxy from ruin, he must find the strength to carry on and reclaim his ultimate purpose. But more than two million years in the future, the fight has changed. 
Former allies are now enemies, and enemies have taken on entirely new forms. Chased from the very edge of humanity's vast empire into the heart of the ancient conspiracy, he must finally come face to face with himself, for without the truth of his past, humanity's future will never be secured. Price starts seven ninety nine. Sean Williams, Astropolis, Book 3, The Grand Conjunction. Next up is Tom Holt. Tom Holt, this one is may contain traces of magic, hardback, priced at $12.99, Orbit. I've never read any Tom Holt books. I know he's like he's got like oodles and oodles out. I mean, we're talking probably about 30, probably 30 or 40 actual books written there. Tom Holt was born in London in 1961. At Oxford, he studied bar billiards, ancient Greek agriculture, and the care and fielding of a small, temperamental Japanese motorcycle engines. Interests which led him, perhaps inevitably, to qualify as a solicitor and emigrate to Somerset, where he specialised in death and taxes for seven years before going straight in 1995. Now a full-time writer, he lives in Shard, Somerset, with his wife, one daughter, and an unmistakable scent of blood wafting on the breeze from the local meatpacking plant. You can find Tom Holt on the web at www.tom-holt.com. They're all kinds of products, the good ones, the bad ones. The ones that stay in the garage mouldering for years until your garden gnome makes a home out of them. Most are harmless if handled properly, even if they do contain traces of nuts. But some are not, not the ones that contain traces of magic. Chris Popham wasn't paying enough attention when he talked to his sat-nav. Sure, she gave him directions, but never back-talked him, and always led him to his next spot on the map with perfect accuracy. She was the best thing in his life, so it really wasn't his fault that he didn't start paying attention when she talked to him. In his defence, that was her job. But when Take the Next Right turned into Excuse Me, that was when the real trouble started. Because sometimes a sat-nav isn't a sat-nav. Sometimes it's an imprisoned soul trapped inside a small metal box that will do anything to get free. And some products you just can't return. There you go. Tom Holtz may contain traces of magic. The cover's a little bit suspect in my eyes. It's pencil drawn of a frog jumping out of a, a top hat with the words Tom Holt. And it's the cover actually colour is like a magnolia. Not very striking. Doesn't really get my, my blood boiling. More praise for Tom Holt here. Inventively entertaining, that was SFX. Uniquely twisted, cracking gags, The Guardian. Gratifyingly clever and very amusing, Mail on Sunday. Frothy and fast and funny, Scotland on Sunday. And Time Out says, dazzling. I, I can write better than that. Dazzling, is that it? Well, to be honest, I bet Time Out wrote this huge review and I've just kind of picked that one, the one good word, dazzling. We'll use that. So there you go. Orbit, Tom Holtz, may contain traces of magic. What did I say it was? Twelve ninety nine coming in around about three hundred and eighteen pages, something like that, three hundred and thirty pages. Three hundred and thirty two. Three hundred and thirty six. <laughs> How many is it? I've got to tell you that. Three hundred and thirty nine. There. Last one up is Simon Green's The Secret Histories. This book is called The Spy Who Haunted Me. A bit of a kind of take on the James Bond thing, I think, with all spies and deaths and 
you know, ghosts and goblins and stuff like that. This spy yarn is packed with enough humour, action and plot twists to satisfy fans who prefer their adventure shaken, not stirred. Publishers Weekly. Like, now, see, now that is a tagline. Do you know what I mean? That, that's a nice one. The spy who haunted me, the legendary independent agent, is dying. So who will inherit this hoard of secret information and fabulous secrets? For most of last century, he was the greatest spy in the world, but now the independent agent is retiring. He has decided on one last great game. The six greatest spies in the world today must work together and compete against each other to solve the six greatest mysteries in the world. Whoever wins this game will also win the agent's priceless treasure trove of information. Eddie Drood, a.k.a. Shaman Bond, has been invited to join the greatest game. And of course, he can't say no, especially when he learns what the mysteries are. Everything from the Philadelphia experiment to whatever the hell really happened at Roswell. But that means he needs to survive working alongside old friends and old enemies. Especially when the spies start dying one by one. And one of them is going to end up haunting him for the rest of his life. The Spy Who Haunted Me is the third of the secret histories. A rivet and rollercoaster ride through the dark side. Price that twelve ninety nine. This is one of those trade paperbacks. Nice cover. It's got like a bit of a James Bond silhouette, and another silhouette of a lady with one big mother of a knife there. Little goblin sitting on the on the, the letter E in green. So yes, New York Times bestselling writer Simon Green. The secret history is the spy who haunted me. That's from Galance. Like I say, at twelve ninety nine. That is the new titles this week. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. So log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. You know, the things that are like in science fiction, the, the, a lot of them there is in Audible, do you know? And I mentioned it last week, and then it's, it's been preying on my mind. Slaughterhouse-Five, you know, Kirk Vonnegut's novel. The actual production side of that by Audible was just stunning, do you know what I mean? I'll give you a little heads up for Slaughterhouse. 1969 by Kirk Vonnegut. Postmodern, anti-war science fiction novel. And it's actually, you know... Vonnegut got his ideas from, you know, he was involved in the kind of Dresden bombings, and this is where he got his ideas for this novel from there. And, you know, it's a powerful story, and it's the best thing about this story, though, is that this audio production is first class. It's narrated by Ethan Hawke, and he just does, and it's like a, it's a whisper. Do you know what that sounds? It's just, it's a, it's a weird thing. I got a review by Ethan Hawke here, and it says, Hawke rises to this occasion. Hawke adopts a confidential whisper-like tone, the perfect pitch for this book. That was Publishers Weekly saying that. Audiophile says, the book gets star treatment from narrator Ethan Hawke, who immerses us in this author's words. Hawke almost whispers his way through the text, as if letting us into a big secret. And it is, it's so effective that, you know, because like, when you first hear it, it is this kind of almost whisper. You know, I'll see, if I, I'll, I'll see if I can play it for you. One moment. I'm reminded, too, of the song that goes, 
My name is Jan Janssen. I work in Wisconsin. I work in a lumber mill there. The people I meet when I walk down the street, they say, what's your name? And I say, my name is Jan Janssen. I work in Wisconsin. And so on to infinity. Over the years, people I've met have often asked me what I'm working on, and I've usually replied that the main thing was a book about Dresden. I said that to Harrison Starr, the movie maker, one time, and he raised his eyebrows and inquired, Is it an anti-war book? Yes, I said, I guess. You know what I say to people when I hear they're writing anti-war books? No. What do you say, Harrison Starr? I say... Why don't you write an anti-glacier book instead? What he meant, of course, was that there would always be wars, that they were as easy to stop as glaciers. I believe that, too. And even if wars didn't keep coming like glaciers, there would still be plain old death. Do you mean just stunning? So that's my recommendation. Kirk Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Fantastic story, fantastic narration. Do pop over to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa. Next, we're going to get into the fiction of the day, and the fiction is a great piece of writing. It is by David D. Levine, and the story is called Titania Mike Saves the Day. David D. Levine's story, I've probably said that story wrong, won the 2006 Hugo Award for Best Short Story. His story, Titania Mike Saves the Day, which is this one, was a nominee for the 2007 Nebula Award. And the tale of the Golden Eagle was a previous Hugo nominee. He is John W. Campbell Award nominee, 2004 and 2003. Writers of the Future Contest winner, 2002. James White Award winner, 2001. And Clarion West graduate in 2000. His sole stories too, fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's Realms of Fantasy and Anthologies, including Mike Resnick's New Voices in SF. His latest bit of news is he's joined George R. R. Martin's Wild Cards Consortium. He lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife Kate Yule, with who he edits the fanzine Bento. You can find his website at bentopress.com. Today's narration is by Julie Davis over there at Forgotten Classics. Julie is just great voice for this story it was well worth and I've, I've waited a while for this one haven't I Julie <laughs> yes so Julie thank you so much do pop over to Julie's site forgottenclassics.com she's been really kind at the sofa doing all this work for her so the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present Titanium Mike Saves the Day by David D. Levine 5 an emergency radiation shelter near the asteroid Chiron, December 2144. Grandma, I'm scared! The poor girl wasn't just scared, she was terrified. Behind a faceplate fogged with rapid breaths, her skin was pale and clammy, and her sapphire-blue eyes twitched like small frightened animals. Helen wasn't exactly calm herself. Don't fret, Sophie, she said, but her own voice trembled. She muted her helmet mic and took a deep breath before continuing, We'll be safe here. For a while, anyway, she added silently. In all Helen Buchanan's 78 years, she'd never seen a solar flare so strong come on so fast. 
They'd had barely enough warning to reach this abandoned mining module before a storm of protons moving at near light speed began to scour this sector of the belt. And her lightweight two-seater jump bug offered almost no shielding against the radiation, so they were trapped here until the storm passed, which might be hours, or days, or weeks. Now you just try to keep calm, she told Sophie. While I see what we have in the way of supplies. But the module's cupboards contained only dust. Its oxy tanks were still welded to the wall, but when she put her helmet against each one and tapped it with her hand light, all she heard was the dim tink of metal in vacuum. That wasn't good. Not good at all. She took another calming breath, then checked the oxy meter on her wrist. Twenty-one hours at the current rate of consumption. She tweaked the mixture a little leaner. It might give her headaches, but that beat the alternative. All right, now, sugar, let me check your tanks. Helen turned to Sophie around, stopping the rotation with a practiced tap on the shoulder as she bent to peer at the girl's tank-mounted meter and gasped. Only six hours left. What's wrong, Grandma? She considered her response while thinning Sophie's mix. Panic would drive the child's oxy consumption up, but she'd know if she was being lied to. She turned to Sophie to face herself and looked her straight in the eye. Well, kiddo, we're a little light on the oxy. Now, most flares only last a few hours, but this one's a real whopper. No telling how long it'll go on. She reached behind herself and began unshipping her number three tank. So I'm going to give you some of mine. Hold still. The emergency connector hose was too short. The light was giving out, and Helen hadn't done this kind of detail work with gloves on in years. But eventually she got everything connected together and bungeed the extra tank to the child's pack. Sophie's meter now read ten hours. Only four hours more? That tank would have kept Helen going for seven The poor frightened child was gulping down the oxy like nobody's business. This had to stop. Standard practice was to use sleeping pills, but Sophie's bubblegum pink suit lacked such grown-up supplies. She'd have to find another way. Helen thought back to her days raising Sophie's mother, but no situation this worrisome had ever come up then. Then she thought back a little further. Sweetie, Do you know about titanium, Mike? Sophie didn't reply, just shook her head slowly inside her helmet. Well, then, looks like I need to fill in a few holes in your education. She drew Sophie to herself, chest plate against chest plate, so the girl could feel her voice in her bones, not just hear it filtered through radio. Titanium, Mike, is, well... He's more of a force of nature than a man, really. They say his father was gravity and his mother was vacuum. Is he going to come and help us? Helen considered the question for a moment. Well, he might. You never can tell where old Mike might show up. When Cassandra's station was coming apart, he stuck the two halves back together with spit. And he's the one who stopped Ceres from spinning. 
Ceres doesn't spin. Everyone knows that. Not anymore. But back in the old days, she rolled like a stuck gyro, and it wasn't safe to get near. Mike lassoed her with a bungee cord and straightened her out. Sophie looked mighty dubious at that. But dubious didn't use nearly as much oxy as panicked. No, really, it's true. If you don't believe me, you can ask Mike yourself the next time you see him. He's done all sorts of things. Why, when he was just a kid, he put rockets in his pockets and scrubbers in his rubbers and walked all the way around the sun just to see where he'd come from. At that, Sophie actually managed a weak little smile. Helen smiled back at her. As she warmed to her subject, she found her own mood changing. The stories took her back to the early days of the Aurora Mining Company, when a certain amount of privation and danger was just a part of the job. Mike was born on Earth, but he never fit in there. He was a big man, and always kept hitting his head on things, or tripping over his own big feet. One day he said to himself, Why can't I just float around and avoid all this bother? So he decided to go to space, where he could do just that. But he realized he'd need something to breathe when he got there, so he took an old pickle jar, stuck some seaweed on the bottom, and screwed it onto the neck of his suit. And that was the beginning of hydroponics. Then he found some old thrusters that were lying around, but he was too big for just one thruster to lift. So he stacked up a few of them on top of each other, and that was the beginning of the multi-stage lifter. When he got to space, all the people were just drifting around with nothing to do. So he took some old foil food wrappers and spun them together into a big shiny dish to concentrate the sunlight, and then he went down to Luna and started throwing rocks into the hot spot, and that was the beginning of solar smelting. Mike took the smelted ore and started making cans and spikes and bubbles and donkeys and all kinds of other things that no one had ever seen before, but they didn't know how to use them, so Mike started to teach them. And so it went, the end of each tale sparking the beginning of the next, and pretty soon Sophie started asking questions, and it wasn't long before she was contributing her own outlandish details. Then Helen's voice grew tired, and they both slept for a while, and when Sophie woke up, she asked for another Mike story. When the all-clear sounded, somehow it had gotten to be twelve hours later, and Sophie still had more than an hour left in her tank. 4. A Mining Facility Near the Asteroid Vesta, October 2088 Don't give me that, bull! Orchakowski brought his massive fist down on the metal table with a resounding blow that knocked a squeeze bulb of coffee loose from its grip pad. But nobody at the table noticed the bulb as it tumbled away. They were all busy shouting at each other. Javon Carter, floating near the door, snagged the bulb from the air with one long brown hand. He stared at it a moment, then stuck it to the wall beside him with a sigh. The canteen was the largest space they had, and it still wasn't big enough to contain the tension between the two groups of miners, as thick and foul as the air that puffed from the helmet rings of their well-worn suits with every vehement gesture. 
Listen to me, Orchakowski was yelling over and over. The muscular sapper had enough lung power to overtop the others. We need to take what we can and get out. No way, Enrique shouted back, veins standing out on his forehead. We've all worked too hard to give up now. Orchakowski spread his hands. Face it, Aurora's over. Aurora is not over. That was Buchanan, a feisty red-headed kid who emphasized her words with a finger in Orchakowski's face. We've pulled out of worse situations than this. The big man ignored the intruding finger. Maybe, he said, but we didn't have an alternative before. He glared at Buchanan, who stared back, her sapphire blue eyes defiant. We'd be insane to pass up this offer. Enriquez made a rude noise. Pennies on the dollar. Griswold, the gray-haired accountant, rolled his eyes at that. It's the best we're going to get. Orchakowski nodded vigorously as Griswold continued. Hardcastle is the only other company in a position to exploit our claims. No one else would even touch us. A half-dozen voices exploded at that, and Carter shook his head. This argument was going nowhere, running in circles and feeding on itself. If it wasn't settled soon, and decisively, it would tear the group apart. Carter was just an engineer, but someone had to do something about this situation, and it looked like it had to be him. He thought back to his first job in space, and his favorite boss. How would Ray Chen have handled it? That's exactly why we have to stay independent, Buchanan shouted over the others, gaining the floor for a moment. Hardcastle has already bought out every other molybdenum miner in the belt. If they get us, too... Griswold waved his hands. They've just proved they're the only ones who can make Molly pay. We can, began Buchanan, and... Exactly, screamed Orchakowski, and... Bull, said Enriquez, and ten other voices were all raised at once. And Carter pressed his thumb over the relief port on his air pack and goosed the nitro valve. The escaping gas shrilled into the tumult with a screaming whistle that brought the argument to a sudden halt. Everyone looked at Carter. Excuse me, he said with a hand on his stomach as though he'd just burped, and a few people laughed at that. The rest simply waited for him to speak. His forty years in the belt had earned him a certain amount of respect. I know you're all kind of upset, he said at last, but I was just reminded of a little story that might help to put this situation into perspective. It's a Titanium Mike story. What the... snarled Orchakowski, but several people shushed him. Others just looked baffled. For those of you who don't know him, Carter said, Titanium Mike was nothing less than the greatest belter who ever scratched his helmet on a rock. They say his father was the sun and his mother was the moon, and a long time ago, when everything in the system flew about every which way and no one could ever find their way from one place to another, Mike decided he ought to do something about it. Carter noticed Griswold nodding thoughtfully. He'd recognized the story. Bingo! Mike went to the sun, Carter continued, and said, Old Saul, it sure would be easier on everyone if things had some kind of predictable orbits. 
And the son said, You're right, Mike, and you know there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. So the son puffed and grunted and sent out flares and winds and magnetic fields and jostled all the planets and asteroids into orbit around himself. Mike thanked him kindly, and the son was satisfied because now he was in the center of everything. But now that everything was going around the sun, things were crossing each other's orbits and crashing into each other all the time, and... Carter paused and gnawed on his lower lip for a bit. And you know, I'm having a little trouble remembering what comes next. Griswold, can you help me out here? Griswold gave Carter a look that said, You sly old dog, I know exactly what you're doing. But what he said was, I do believe I can. The gray-haired accountant took a pull from his coffee bulb and said, Now that all that stuff was going around the sun, everything was crashing into everything else all the time. So Mike went to Jupiter and said, Old Jove, it sure would be easier on everyone if things didn't cross each other up like that. And Jove said, You're right, Mike. And you know there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. So Jupiter threw his weight around and tugged and pulled until all the planets and asteroids were orbiting clockwise in the plane of the ecliptic. Mike thanked him kindly. And Jupiter was satisfied because now he didn't have all kinds of planetesimals and things bumping into him. But now that everything was spread across a big plane, instead of going around in a tight little knot in the middle, it took a lifetime and a half just to walk from Venus to Mars. Then he pulled a fresh bulb of coffee from the dispenser on the table and tossed it to Enriquez. Enriquez, you know this one, don't you? The dark-skinned little pilot caught the bulb. Yeah, he said as he pulled the tab. Mike went to Ceres and said, Old Seer, it sure would be easier on everyone if there were a quicker way to get from one place to another. And Ceres said, you're right, Mike, and you know there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. So Ceres called all her sisters together, and they hustled and bustled and fiddled and twiddled until there were orbital paths all over the system, with home and transfer ellipses and slingshot maneuvers and all the other things that make the trip go a little faster. Mike thanked her kindly, and Ceres was satisfied because now people would have to visit her and her sisters all the time if they wanted Yttrium to keep their fusion drives going and Carbos to eat on the trip. And Mike looked out on the system and realized he'd made a mess of everything. Because now, even though you could be sure where your destination was and which way it was going, it took years to get there, even with the best orbital path and a full tank of hydro. But he couldn't go back to his friends and ask them to undo what they'd worked so hard to do at his request. He paused and sipped his coffee then cocked an eyebrow at Orchakowski. You know how it ends, don't you? Orchakowski just glared back at him. Come on, Buchanan said. Didn't you grow up on Titania Mike stories just like the rest of us? I know you did, said Carter. I've heard you telling them to your kids over the radio. The big sapper looked at the expectant faces all around him, then let out a sigh. Oh, all right, he said. Mike went to Pluto, he said. And he said it in his best storytelling voice, a voice as big and rough and full of vinegar as Mike himself. Crotchety old Pluto, who was so cold and distant and independent that he didn't exactly orbit the sun and didn't exactly stay in the plane of the ecliptic 
and wasn't exactly easy to get to even after everything else had changed. But he always was a hard-headed practical sort and full of good advice. And Mike said to old Pluto, Old Plute, it sure would be easier on everyone if things were the way they'd been before. And Pluto said, You're right, Mike, and you know there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. But I'm just a tired old planet, and this is all I have to offer. And he handed Mike a thing that looked like a little shiny pebble. What's this? said Mike. It's a little thing called persistence, said Pluto. So Mike thanked Pluto kindly and dogged down his helmet and set to work. And ever since then, whenever people have wanted things to be better, they've had to work them out for themselves. It's a hard job, but with persistence, all things are possible. Several people applauded Orchakowski's performance, and he made a little bow in the air. Then he told another story, the one about how Mike climbed from LEO to L5 on a cosmic string, which reminded Enriquez of the body one about how Titanium Mike and Satellite Sal made Venus spin backwards. And Carter just floated there in the corner, sipped his coffee, and smiled. Quite a little while later, someone remembered why they'd gathered and called for a vote. It was 19 to 0 to reject Hardcastle's offer. 3. A rented office at Chaffee Station in Low Earth Orbit, July 2052. It certainly is an interesting proposal. Raymond Chen forced himself to smile broadly at that, just as though he hadn't heard the same reaction from five other venture capitalists this month, and just as though all five of them hadn't eventually said no. Glad you like it, he said, and busied himself shutting down the projector. Orbital diagrams and financial projections faded from the air like unfunded dreams. Valerie Itsui, principal of Itsui Investments, sat with fingers steepled and a stiff, unreadable expression on her face. Well, said Jan, at the same time Kelly said, Well, then, the twins shared a momentary glance, then Kelly continued, Why don't we adjourn to the outer office? I believe lunch is ready. Ray swallowed. The Griffin sisters almost never stepped on each other's lines. That they would do so now showed just how nervous they were. As the twins and Mizutsui moved toward the door, the fourth and newest member of the fledgling asteroid metals extraction corporation touched Raymond's hand. Might as well start packing up now, Javon muttered low. I was watching her the whole time you were talking, and I swear her face never moved once. You just leave her to me, Ray replied, and clapped Javon on the shoulder. But after Javon turned and followed the other three, Ray pursed his lips and sighed. Money was getting tight, for the industry as a whole as much as for Amec. The nearby moon and the resource-rich satellites of Saturn and Jupiter had been snapped up years ago, and after the recent series of space development bankruptcies, people were saying the scattered rocks of the asteroid belt could never be successfully exploited. But Ray was convinced that the twins' novel refinery technology could make mining the asteroids for molybdenum possible. Young Javon's engineering talents could make it practical. 
and his own money skills could make it profitable. First, though, he had to sell that concept to the people with the money, and so far he'd failed. What was he doing wrong? The technology would work. He was sure of it. The financials were rock solid. He'd put every bit of supporting data he could into his presentation. So why weren't the big fish biting? Ray drummed his fingers on the table. Maybe, maybe he was using the wrong bait. Venture capitalists like Valerie Atsui spent their days in meetings like this one, looking at charts full of optimistic projections. What made the difference between the one that caught her attention and the many that didn't? Not data. Dreams. He had to make her believe in the dream. He had to make her feel the same excitement he felt for Amex's plan. The same excitement that had driven him into space development in the first place. Ray nodded to himself, tucked the folded projector into a pocket, and stepped into the outer office. He made his selections from the tray of sushi laid out on the reception desk, then sat next to Mizutsui. So, he said, what made you decide to invest in space development in the first place? She wiped her lips with a precisely folded napkin before replying. Profit, Mr. Chen. There's more upside potential in space than anywhere on Earth, even now. It wasn't the money for me, Ray said. The twins looked at each other in surprise. Oh, sure, I got my MBA because I didn't have the head for science or the guts for zero-G construction. But ever since I was a teenager, I wanted to go into space. He leaned forward in his chair. Because of the stories... They were all looking at him now, giving him their complete attention in a way he'd never managed with any number of rosy financial projections. Ms. Itsui cocked her head in consideration of his words. The others were flat astonished. This was a side of himself he'd never revealed before. What stories, Mr. Chen? Tales of exploration and adventure and daring do, Ms. Itsui. Do you know the name Titanium Mike? I can't say that I do. Ray settled back in his chair. Well, most folks say Mike is just a myth. But the fact is that he's been kicking around in the system since Branson Station was just a loose mess of bolts and girders. His father was a thruster, and his mother was an asteroid. And he's the one who figured out how to spin a station for gravity without making everyone inside dizzy. I hadn't been aware of that being a problem. It wasn't, of course, but a twinkle of interest had appeared in her eyes. Mike's responsible for a lot of things that people take for granted today. For instance, he's the one who cleared the Cassini Gap. Ms. Itsui set down her chopsticks. And how did he manage that? Well, it all started one day when Mike got a call from a friend of his on Titan. We're in a bad way, he said. Now Mike wasn't the kind of guy to just sit around when a friend was in trouble, so he grabbed a pony can and threw it in the direction of Saturn. Then he climbed in real quick before it got away, and it carried him off to Titan as neat as you please. Javon was gaping like a trout now, and Kelly was giving Ray an I hope you know what you're doing look. But Jan got it. When he got there, Ray continued, 
His friend said, Thank goodness you're here, Mike. We've got plenty of atmosphere here, but there's nothing to eat, and we're plumb miserable. Well, there's nothing that matters more to an old space hog like Mike than a good hot meal. He snagged a nickel-iron asteroid that happened to be drifting by, and he took his trusty ore hammer and he pounded it into a skillet, eighteen meters across and with a handle twenty-two meters long. Then he pulled out his hand thruster, which was ten meters wide, and pushed a million and three centicheese, and headed off to look for something to put in that skillet. He looked at Lapidus, but there wasn't anything there but ice, and he looked at Dion. but there wasn't anything there but rocks. And he looked at every one of Saturn's moons and moonlets, but there wasn't anything there to eat at all. So he dug in his heels to kill his orbital velocity, dropped right down to Saturn himself, and took a big bite out of the old man's atmosphere. But it was cold and smelly and none too filling besides, so he just spat it out. At that, Ms. Itsui actually smiled. Ray kept going. But there was one more place he hadn't tried, and that was the rings. Now, in those days, people thought Saturn's rings were nothing but ice and rocks. But Mike had an idea that might not be the case. So he grabbed the rescue handle on the back of his suit and lifted himself up to the rings. The first rock was nothing but ice. The second one was nothing but rocks. But the third one wasn't ice or rocks. It was all made up of carbo nubs and jerky bits and other tasty things. He pulled out his skillet and filled it up, then took it back to Titan and cooked it up over one of the volcanoes there, and the people ate it all up and asked for seconds. So he went back and got another skillet full, and then another, and another. Pretty soon that tasty ring was all gone, and the place it used to be is what we call the Cassini Gap. But Mike was always a little sloppy. And while he was scooping all that stuff out, he scattered bits and pieces all over the place. So, people have been extracting carbohydrates from Saturn's rings ever since. There was a long pause then with Ray and Javon and the. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Twins all waiting for Mizutsui to speak. 
I can see that this means a lot to you, Mr. Chen, she said at last. It means a lot to all of us, Ms. Tsui. She set her plate aside and pulled out her data pad. I'd like to take a closer look at some of your numbers. Of course. There was still a lot of work to do, but that was the moment when Ray knew she was hooked. Two. A Corporate Cubicle in Cocoa, Florida, April 2041. Delete, 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 delete. Tony Ramirez was pruning ideas. His desk was crowded with icons, each one representing an idea he'd invested five minutes or a day or a week on. None of them were any good. He needed a fresh start. He paused with his finger on the icon labeled, Embrace Space. He was still fond of that slogan. The rhythm and rhyme were compelling, and the text treatment the graphic artists had come up with it had a lot of snap. But the client thought it was too pedestrian. Delete. The icon dissolved beneath his fingertip in a puff of pixels. Damn the client anyway. Damn all clients everywhere. Tony stood and stretched. The clock in one corner of his desk read four o'clock. One more hour and it would be the weekend. Maybe he should knock off early, get in a little surfing. He touched a control on his desk, and the window blinds rotated, letting in the sun and the view. Just a few miles away, across the Indian River, one of the client's boosters stood idle. A slim white cigar crammed with construction supplies for Virgin LLC's growing Branson station, pinned to the launch pad by lawsuits over noise. There was the problem in a nutshell. The thunder of rocket engines had changed from a triumph to an annoyance. Noise lawsuits, problems hiring and retaining qualified people, stagnant stock price. All of these were symptoms of the public image that Virgin had hired Tony's firm to solve. If this launch hiatus went on much longer, they might pull out of Florida. They might even give up on space altogether. Tony paced behind his desk, the surf momentarily forgotten. How the heck was he supposed to make space exciting? He'd interviewed dozens of people, space workers as well as the general public, and not one of them thought of it as much more than just another place to work. Sure, there was some danger to it, but driving to work was dangerous right here on Earth. He scrolled through the interview folder on his desk, looking for inspiration and paused at the image of an 80-year-old Anglo who still remembered the California Redwoods and the space race with the Russians. When I was a kid, he'd said, astronauts were heroes, not people. You only ever saw them in black and white, on TV or in the papers. These days they're everywhere in living color, but they're just like all the rest of my neighbors. Boring! And he'd laughed, showing perfect white reconstructed teeth. Tony had written off that guy at the time as just another disaffected boomer. But now he wondered if people like him might find it easier to get excited about space if it was smaller and farther away again, squished down to fit into a tiny black-and-white TV screen. No, that wasn't quite it. But there was something there he could use. Black-and-white, yes, plain, simplistic, a plain and simple hero, something people could believe in, 
something real. Tony was starting to get excited about this one. New file. A window opened on his desk, the blinking cursor awaiting his words. An astronaut, like in the space race? No, too old-fashioned, too militaristic for today's audience. It had to be some kind of space worker. He scrolled back through the interview folder until he found an orbital welder named Sarah he'd cornered for an hour in a bar on Merritt Island and touched play. There was this guy called Mike, the welder's image said. I'll never forget him. We called him Titanium Belly Mike. He'd drink anything. Tony's lip quirked. That wasn't the right image at all. But the name... And then the whole thing snapped together in his head. This is the story of Titanium Mike, he said, and the words appeared silently on the screen. His father was a shuttle pilot, and his mother was a welder. He was born wearing a spacesuit, and when he was nine days old, he built himself a rocket and took off for orbit. Then, when his rocket ran low on fuel, he lassoed a satellite with a length of high tensile cable and pulled himself up the rest of the way on that. He was so tough that the radiation just bounced off him. It was crazy and nonsensical and childish, and it desperately needed editing. But something about it really resonated. Tony stayed at his desk until well after midnight, the tale growing and embellishing itself as though it were passing through him from somewhere else rather than him making it up. He mocked it up over the weekend and showed it to his boss first thing Monday morning. They presented it to the client on Thursday, and it went national the following month. Twelve-year-old Ray Chen and millions of other kids took Titanium Mike into their hearts. Later, they took him with them into space. 1. A Bar in Port Canaveral, Florida January 2023 Sarah Perez rolled her beer bottle around and around in the little sticky puddle on the bar, resting her chin on her fist. She really ought to go back to her room and pack up. Tomorrow was going to be a very long day. Well, if it isn't my best girl, Sarah, why so glum? Sarah didn't even have to look up. She'd know that rough, alcohol-soaked voice anywhere, especially here. I'm through with space, Mike. The words caught in her throat. It was the first time she'd spoken the truth out loud. I'm heading home tomorrow. Mike plopped his grace double chin down on the bar next to hers. His breath was inflammable. And why would Polara want to get rid of a fine young welder like you? They don't. And then the whole story came pouring out in a rush. How she'd run away from home at 15, made her way to Florida, worked her way up from waitress to welder, and now, when she was just about to launch on her first orbital gig, her family had finally tracked her down. They'll be here tomorrow morning to drag me back to that same safe suburban deep freeze I escaped from two years ago. So don't be here. Sarah raised her head and met Mike's bloodshot eyes with her own. No point running away again. They've already made sure every cop in Florida knows who I am. Hmm. Mike scratched his wiry chin with work-hardened fingers. I guess you'll just have to go somewhere else, then, somewhere without cops. 
He jerked a thumb skyward. Yeah, right. She put her forehead on the edge of the bar, stared down into her lap. Like I can afford that. If she could have held on until next Monday, when her contract started, Polara would have paid her boost fees. A tapping sound caught her attention. She rolled her head to one side to see what it was. Mike was tapping a gold-edged transparent card on the bar. When he saw she'd seen it, he let it fall into the beer puddle. Now you can. Sarah jerked herself upright, snatched up the card. Where did you get this? Let me tell you a little something about myself, Mike said. And suddenly he didn't seem drunk at all. My father was a bank teller, and my mother was a CPA. Nothing special, but they were good people, and they taught me the value of a dollar. I might enjoy a good stiff drink, but I know my limits, and I know to pay myself first, and I know that the real value of a dollar is in what you can do with it when a friend's in trouble. He pointed to the card with one grimy finger. There's enough there to get you on tonight's Leo booster and pay for your air until your contract starts. Now get going. The card was cold and stiff between her fingers. I can't possibly pay you back. Live well, fly high, and kick ass. That's all the payment I need. He waved her away. Now shoo. She shooed, but she gave him a big hug first. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is David D. Levine's. Do pop over to David's site. David, thank you so much for letting Starship Sofa do that story. It means a lot to me. Thank you. And Julie, what can I say? Thank you so much. Now today, in place of like a regular history of the genre segment, Amy H. Sturgis shares a recent presentation of hers entitled When Harry Met Fairy, The Tolkien Solution to the Rowling Problem based on her scholarship about the contemporary attitudes towards fantasy and its readership. It's in this talk that Amy uses the Harry Potter series as a springboard for diving into G.R. Tolkien's theory of the genre, with a little bit of help from J.K. Chesterton, H.G. Wells and C.S. Lewis thrown in. And actually, later on in this summer, listen out for another talk by Amy, because it's going to be based on a forthcoming presentation at the 2009 World Science Fiction Convention. So I'm dying to get that as well. So, Amy... Looking forward to this. Greetings, my friends. It is a pleasure to share with you today a talk that I have given at several venues, most recently at the Richmond, Virginia Science Fiction Convention RavenCon in April 2009. Just a quick note, this talk is based on an article of mine called Harry Potter is a Hobbit, first published in CSL, the Bulletin of the New York C.S. Lewis Society. By kind permission of its editor, it is now available on my website at www.amyhsturgis.com. This talk likewise draws from my forthcoming book chapter, When Harry Met Fairy, which will be published in the book Hogshead Conversations, Fantastic Essays on Harry Potter, edited by Travis Prinzi and published by Zosima Press. That should be out in late summer 2009, and you can find out more information about that at the Zosima Press website at Z-O-S-S-I-M-A dot com. And without further ado, When Harry Met Fairy, 
the Tolkien solution to the rolling problem. My grandfather gave me my first copy of J.R.R. Tolkien's *The Hobbit*. I remember him holding out the volume, saying, "You need to read this. I really love it." And I was very pleased that I would have something that he held in esteem that I could read and enjoy on my own. It seemed grown up. It seemed exciting. So I was very tickled by the gift. But before I could reach up and take it, he seemed to rethink the whole thing. As if it dawned on him that he was holding out a book with a wizard and dwarves and elves and, of course, a hobbit on the cover, and so he changed his comment and he said, "I mean, I loved it when I was young." Well, that didn't do much for my enthusiasm. I did consider myself a sophisticated and successful graduate of the second grade. And so I wasn't interested in anything that was only enjoyable to someone when he was a child. But my parents had taught me to be polite, and so I said thank you and reached up to take the book. Luckily for me, just then my grandmother came in, and a very sincere look of horror crossed her face, and she said, "You can't give that to her. That's not appropriate reading for a little girl her age." With monsters and wars, and next thing you know, she'll be reading about people getting their fingers bitten off. Well, that changed the complexion of things quite a bit, and I was convinced that there was nothing anyone could do to keep me from reading The Hobbit, and then going on and reading the other things by J.R.R. Tolkien. My grandmother said this without any sense of irony or reverse psychology. She was quite sincere in her concern. Just as I was quite sincere that I was going to read that book, so I owe a debt of thanks to my grandfather for the book. I owe a debt of thanks to my grandmother for providing the motivation for me to read it. Interestingly enough, as I look back on that, I realize that both of my grandparents were articulating. Perspectives that are still very much a part of the general dialogue about literature today. That is, one perspective that fantasy, by its very nature, is inherently childish and appropriate only for children. The other perspective that works with dark and disturbing themes such as mortality, death. Are not appropriate for children, and in fact, children should be shielded from them. It's these two recurring perspectives in the dialogue about literature that I think come to bear on the problem of J.K. Rowling. Now, you might say J.K. Rowling has no problems. Okay, she certainly has redefined commercial literary success and broken just about every publishing record that exists, but. Oddly enough, despite the tremendous power that her works obviously have had, there is no clear consensus among literary critics, among educators, even among general laypeople, about who is the proper audience for the Harry Potter books. Let's look first at the argument that is made by some that the Harry Potter books are in fact unsuitable for young readers. The Harry Potter series topped the American Library Association's most challenged book list. To make that list, 
in the United States, a book must be actively protested. For example, petitions signed and letters mailed, calling for the books to be pulled from libraries. According to the American Library Association, the series as a whole ranked as the seventh most challenged book of the decade from 1990 to 2000, and that's no small feat since the very first Harry Potter book did not debut in the United States until 1998. So it only had two years to make its way. To the seventh most challenged book of the decade, religious convictions lead some individuals to denounce Harry Potter and the tradition of fantasy to which he belongs altogether. I'm not going to consider them because their concern is really with an entire genre. There are others who do embrace fantasy who still worry specifically about the Harry Potter books, and so I want to talk about these people. For example. In the article, controversial content in children's literature is Harry Potter harmful to children, by Deborah J. Taub and Heather L. Servati. The authors found that quote objections to the books stem from their controversial content, from the centrality of magic to the topic of death to scenes that some believe are too violent, intense, or scary for children. In the article, "Some Want Harry to Vanish Till Kids Are Older" by Deidre Donahue of USA Today, the author documents how independent booksellers such as Diane Garrett warn parents that Harry Potter books are quote completely inappropriate for their small children as a kind of personal crusade going against Scholastic, the U.S. publisher of the Harry Potter series. Which claims that the novels, at least the earlier ones in the series, are suitable for those as young as seven years old. In an undeniably positive analysis of the Harry Potter series of magicals and muggles, reversals and revulsions at Hogwarts, Jan Lacoste describes the paradox of a supposed children's series dealing with subjects often closed, even prohibited, to youngsters. I quote. The Harry Potter series incorporates several topics that are more or less taboo to children: violence, gross and disgusting items and topics, magic and witchcraft, and the concept of evil as well as evil incarnate. Young readers find all of these rather enticing, as anything that adults consider off limits must be worthwhile. Okay, so if the issues in Harry Potter, such as death and the means by which they are presented, such as violence, Are not appropriate for children. It appears likely to follow that adults then are the natural target for the series. Not so, some reviewers say. In the same way that critics of content object to the so-called adult subjects in Harry Potter, critics of genre object to the so-called childish wrappings of fantasy through which Rowling chooses to address them. Critic William Sapphire says, "Quote the trouble." Is that grown-ups are buying these books ostensibly to read to kids, but actually to read for themselves? He complains, quote, "These are not, however, books for adults. This is not just dumbing down; it is growing down. Prize-worthy culture, it ain't. More than a little is a waste of adult time." Yale professor Harold Bloom says, "Why read if what you read will not enrich your mind or spirit or personality?" Like Sapphire, Bloom revisits works he views as classic, canonical texts, none of which, incidentally, are fantasy. And he laments that the success of J.K. Rowling's series diverts attention from these quote 
more difficult pleasures. Also, like Sapphire, Bloom sees the Harry Potter phenomenon as a symptom of a larger cultural malady, general intellectual inadequacy. In effect, he predicts, "quote The cultural critics will soon enough introduce Harry Potter into their college curriculum, and the New York Times will go on celebrating another confirmation of the dumbing down it leads and exemplifies." Well, since I have for several years. Taught a university course on the Harry Potter phenomenon. I should apologize now for personally aiding the downfall of civilization. Philip Hinsher, when reading Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix for review in his column, finds himself thinking, quote, "With shame and intensity, Jesus, I'm reading a book about sodding pixies." In the case of Harry Potter, he says, quote, "The feeling of mild embarrassment is for an adult reader." Never far away. Undergraduate writer Craig Stern at the University of Southern California wrote in the school paper, "I'd like to take this opportunity to provide a little reality check for USC students who seem to be a little too enraptured with the series. Harry Potter is for children. It is a series of children's books." He warns that his classmates risk being lame when they do not realize, quote. We are adults in a respectable institution of higher learning. It's time we stop deluding ourselves. Such positions are so widespread that the UK publisher of the Harry Potter series, Bloomsbury Publishing, even produces a separate set of Harry Potter novels exclusively for adults, with subdued cover artwork intended not to draw attention or ridicule from others. Inextricable from these critics' judgments about the quality, complexity, and future longevity of J.K. Rowling's writing, are suppositions about the nature and purpose of fantasy literature. All betray a certain view of fantasy, in the same way that concerns about the age appropriateness of the books reflect a particular perspective about young readers. At day's end, a difficult question emerges from these. Disparate but repeated lines of fire. If children can't handle dark and serious issues such as death, and adults shouldn't enjoy such childish and light pleasures as fantasy stories, who, if anyone, is the proper audience for the Harry Potter series, and why? According to J.R.R. Tolkien, the solution to this dilemma lies not in discovering a new category of readers altogether, but rather. In dismissing the false assumptions about children, adults, and the nature of fantasy that undergird the question, in his 1908 essay *The Ethics of Elfland*, G.K. Chesterton reflects, quote, "My first and last philosophy, that which I believe in with unbroken certainty, I learnt in the nursery. The things I believed most then, the things I believe most now, are the things called fairy tales." They seem to me to be the entirely rational things. Almost forty years later, J.R.R. Tolkien built on Chesterton's rescue of fairy tales with an in-depth definition of and justification for the genre in his 1947 essay on fairy stories. He defines fairy stories in the following way: First, they touch on or use fairy. By fairy, he didn't mean Tinkerbell flying around with little wings. He meant the perilous realm, a sober magic of a particular mood and power.
Second, these stories take the magic seriously. They do not satirize it or make fun of it, even if the larger work is humorous or satirical in tone. Magic is never the butt of the joke. Three, they involve human beings as characters, and at some level, speak to one or more of humanity's most primal desires. For example, the wish to communicate with other creatures or to journey through time and space. Fourth, and most importantly, they offer to the reader four valuable gifts: fantasy, recovery, escape. And consolation, and it is in his explanation of these four gifts of fairy stories that Tolkien's most energetic and most powerful defense of the genre lies. So let's look more carefully at these four gifts that fairy stories provide, according to J.R.R. Tolkien. The first is fantasy, that is. The seductive creation of an internally consistent secondary universe, while it's arrestingly strange and different from the real world, it nevertheless compels belief in the reader. Tolkien was well aware that even during his own time, literary critics, educators, self-appointed gatekeepers of culture, referred to works of make-believe. With a depreciative tone, he thought they had it all wrong, all backwards. Instead of fantasy being something that was completely irrational, Tolkien believed that it was one of the most rational pursuits there was, because only a reasonable creator could first understand the patterns and laws in the actual universe, and then second construct a comparably constant framework. For his or her own secondary world, and then maintain a stark division between the two consistently throughout his or her work, so that the reader is always compelled and never confused. Tolkien's Roman Catholicism really comes into play here, because he believed that fantasy revealed the author in her truest and most fundamental form as a child of God acting in God's image, driven to create just as she herself was created. So, quality fantasy, in Tolkien's view, was therefore a spiritual and intellectual achievement, a difficult one at that. This led him to admit that fantasy, quote, is, I think, not a lower but a higher form of art, indeed, the most nearly pure form, and so, when achieved, the most potent. The next gift that Tolkien discusses is recovery. Recovery is what is gained when an author pulls us outside of our world and then allows us to come back to it with childlike, though not childish, in the pejorative sense, but childlike perspective. In other words, with awe, with wonder, without jaded or cynical eyes, but rather with a refreshed window on reality, or what Tolkien called. The regaining of a clear view. The third gift is escape, which is a temporary alternative and outlet for what Tolkien calls the fugitive spirit, allowing readers to separate themselves from the triviality of their circumstances in order to encounter, experience, 
and consider something otherwise lost, elusive, or as yet unborn. Think of this as the opportunity to shrug off the burdens that weigh us down. Tolkien was very harsh on those who criticized the notion of escape, and he said the only ones who feared escape were, in fact, jailers. The last gift of fairy stories, according to Tolkien, was consolation. Consolation comes in two forms. One is immediate. In other words, you're happy while you're reading, and that in and of itself is a gift. But the larger and more lasting consolation is what Tolkien termed the eucatastrophe. Happy endings, he said, didn't presuppose an absence of sorrow or failure. In fact, he said that the possibility of these things is necessary to what he called the joy of deliverance. Darkness might, perhaps even must, precede light. Otherwise, the reader would not value the joyous turn that is what he considered to be the highest function of the genre. The eucatastrophe, according to Tolkien, quote, denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Now, once again, we need to go back to Tolkien's Roman Catholicism to really understand what he's saying here, that fairy stories, by giving a joyous turn at the end, not only give a temporary joy to the reader, but also provide a far-off gleam or echo of real joy, a moment of communion with the divine, a taste of what is really true with a big capital T. In other words, Tolkien sees the best fairy stories as echoes of what he considered to be the gospel story, evocative of the same kind of spiritual resonance and redemptive possibilities. So his literary theory and his Christianity here can't be divorced, but it doesn't require a theologian to recognize that Tolkien believes fairy tales capable of offering sophisticated, serious, even life-changing benefits to the reader. Just as importantly, Tolkien didn't think that fairy stories should be relegated to one particular age group. In fact, he notes that fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation are particularly suitable as gifts for adult readers, as they are, and I quote, all things of which children have, as a rule, less need than older people. So Tolkien in On Fairy Stories goes on to challenge adults to ignore the capricious fads of popular sentiment and, quote, read fairy stories as a natural branch of literature, neither playing at being children, nor pretending to be choosing for children, nor being boys who would not grow up. Okay, those of you who are science fiction fans, listen up. Here's where it gets fun. Tolkien criticizes the accident of 20th century history that led fairy stories, or what we call today fantasy, to be considered synonymous with childhood. And the metaphor he uses is from H.G. Wells' 1895 classic novel, The Time Machine. He says that by constructing an artificial division between youngsters and grown-ups, society has created caricatures of the two groups. 
by casting children as the ornamental, carefree, empty-minded Eloy of the time machine, forever stagnant, untroubled, and unchallenged by what they read, and casting adults as the slaves to the machines, the fierce and twisted Morlocks, driven from the lovely light to toil for survival in dankness and darkness. Both views are ridiculous for a variety of reasons, most especially because they deny that both beings are the same creature at different points along a spectrum. Children are adults in training, and adults are older children. To save fairy stories, then, and readers as well, children must be challenged by thoughtful quality material, and adults must be freed to read the genre without social stigma or guilt. I quote again from J.R.R. Tolkien, If fairy story as a kind is worth reading at all, it is worthy to be written for and read by adults. They will, of course, put more in and get more out than children can. Then, as a branch of genuine art, children may hope to get fairy stories fit for them to read, and yet within their measure, as they may hope to get suitable introductions to poetry, history, and the sciences. Though, it may be better for them to read some things, especially fairy stories, that are beyond their measure, rather than short of it. Their books, like their clothes, should allow for growth, and their books, at any rate, should encourage it. The question then arises, where in Tolkien's schema does Harry Potter fit? I would argue that the Harry Potter series meets all of Tolkien's criteria for fairy stories. Take, for example, the concept of fairy, that magic of somber mood and power. I would say that when Harry first sees his heart's dearest desire in the mirror of Irised, that's fairy, when he hears the whispers behind the veil in the Department of Mysteries. That's an encounter with fairy. In Harry's world, the inhabitants remember the past atrocities of he who must not be named, the Dark Lord Voldemort, and alternately fear, deny, enable, and or resist his violent return, a perilous realm indeed. And for taking magic seriously... I think the series also sticks to this very well. Although the tun-tung toffee or skiving snack boxes of the troublemaking twins Fred and George Weasley provide humor in the tales, magic itself is always taken seriously. The readers know from the very first book that magic can be deadly, and the magic itself is never made the butt of the joke. Certainly, the Harry Potter series includes human beings as characters. The muggles, the squibs, even the wizards are recognizable as human beings. And since both Harry Potter and Hermione Granger were raised in our so-called real world, we have characters who certainly represent our perspective in the stories. The stories also incorporate the primal desires that Tolkien discussed, Harry communicates with magical creatures, for example. The time-turner and the pensive allow characters to traverse time and space, etc. And now to the big ones, the quartet of gifts, fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation. I think the Harry Potter series is very successful in creating an internally consistent, believable universe beyond and parallel to the muggle world. 
wainscot fantasy, it's sometimes called, where the magical world goes up so far and bumps into the non-magical world. As Hermione repeatedly reminds her classmates who have never read Hogwarts a history, no one can apparate or disapparate on school grounds. A rule is a rule, and within Rowling's series, the steady adherence to the laws of the magical universe seduces readers into belief. Recovery. I think this, too, is fulfilled well in the Harry Potter series. For example, Arthur Weasley's genuine delight with echoltricity and the fellytone make our own everyday taken-for-granted gadgets seem suddenly new and awe-inspiring and exotic. So, too, are photographs that capture still images, athletes who do not fly, letters that don't howl aloud. They seem dear and precious after time spent at Hogwarts. So, too, does the closeness of parents living, or at the very least, remembered. As for escape, although the Harry Potter plots unfold in the present day, Hogwarts does not wrestle with the problems of teen pregnancy or drive-by school shootings, drug abuse, or environmental degradation. Definitely escape also is provided. And the series, I think, presents exquisite consolation. I won't talk specifically about the final book in case anyone hasn't read it yet. Suffice it to say that each volume includes the joyous turn that, as Tolkien says, denies universal final defeat, savoring a victory made all the more potent by the suffering and danger that preceded it, even while contributing to the larger meta-narrative of the series as a whole and its larger joyous turn, its larger eucatastrophe. I would say that Rowling consistently delivers her happy ending in a kind of literary one-two punch. First, she allows Harry's escape from peril and frustration of Voldemort's plan, but then she follows up with a second revelation once he's returned from danger, and that really brings the joy that's poignant as grief, as Tolkien says. Let me give you an example from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, or Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, depending on where you are. The first punch of the one-two punch would be Harry's defeat of Professor Quirrell and Lord Voldemort, initially through the skill and resourcefulness of Harry, Ron, and Hermione combined, and eventually due to the unconditional and self-sacrificing love that Lily Potter gave her son, a power that protects Harry long after his mother's death. But the second half of the one-two punch comes when the happy ending is secured, when Gryffindor wrests the house cup from Slytherin at the Hogwarts parting feast, thanks not to Harry Potter, but to the often overlooked yet significant courage of the underdog Neville Longbottom. And I would say the seven books taken together as a whole, as a single story, also fit this pattern as well. So, I would say that Harry Potter fits the criteria of Tolkien's fairy stories. This place is rolling squarely in the tradition of many of Tolkien's chief literary influences, and, of course, Tolkien himself. In fact, 
I would say there are many parallels between Rowling's themes and Tolkien's. Scholar John Granger identifies four central issues in Rowling's works: prejudice, change, choice, and death. And I would say this same foursome of subjects runs throughout Tolkien's novels and short stories as well. So let's look at this for a moment. First, let's think about prejudice. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, J.K. Rowling said, "Bigotry is probably the thing I detest most. All forms of intolerance. The whole idea of that which is different from me is necessarily evil." I think she explores this through relationships and metaphors in her Harry Potter series. Malfoy's distaste for the poor or non-pureblood magical folk, the Dursleys' fear of anyone abnormal, the wizarding community's prejudice toward giants and werewolves and squibs and you name it, centaurs' disdain toward humans, even the headless ghosts' dismissal. Of the nearly headless ghosts, Rowling provides a variety of examples of how bigotry hurts its victims, and in the end, the bigots themselves as well. She's also stated that she worries, quote, "Oppressed groups are not, generally speaking, people who stand firmly together. No, sadly, they kind of subdivide among themselves and fight like hell." J.R.R. Tolkien addresses this repeatedly, in The Hobbit, for example. Bilbo Baggins watches uncomprehendingly as the dwarves and elves and men overcome their petty bigotry only when forced to join ranks and face foes in the battle of five armies. The Lord of the Rings seems at times to be a protracted meditation on intolerance, as Tolkien pairs characters from distrustful, suspicious backgrounds together and forces them into alliance: elf and dwarf, man and hobbit. Rohirrim and Wildman, even Shield Maiden and philosopher statesman. In what I think is a very telling twist, Tolkien launches his most poignant attack against those disdainful of fairy itself, those prejudiced against the very essence of fairy stories. In his last short story, Smith of Wooten Major, a personal favorite of mine, I must admit. The narrow-minded Noakes the cook is mocking and dismissive of his assistant Prentice, who, unbeknownst to him, is actually the king of fairy. When Prentice identifies a magical star, the cook jeers at the apparent immaturity of his helper. "What do you mean, young fellow?" he said, not much pleased. "If it isn't funny, what is it?" "It's fay," said Prentice. "It comes from fairy." Then the cook laughed. "All right, all right," he said. It means the same, but call it that if you like. You'll grow up some day. Yet Noakes is the one who suffers most from his prejudice when he is confronted with the King of Fairy in all his splendor. His "take your fairy and your nonsense somewhere else" attitude doesn't allow him to see the magic right before his eyes, and Noakes ends up as a diminished, pitiable, empty character, untouched by the wonder of magic. That transforms the humble protagonist, Smith. Now let's think about the subject of change. There is an imagery of alchemy, transfiguring, transforming, turning the crude into the golden, that pervades the Harry Potter series. There has been some great scholarship done on this, especially by John Granger. 
It's particularly fitting in books that follow the growth and maturation of an anti-heroic boy into an undeniably heroic man. Even more so, perhaps, as the action takes place in the mercurial climate of Lord Voldemort's rebirth and renewed bid for world domination. With every new revelation, Harry and those around him find themselves at a point of no return, pretty much weighed down with knowledge, responsibility, and reputation, compelled to act. Mad-Eye Moody's rumination on the photograph of the First Order of the Phoenix, his laundry list of courage and death and loss, further serves to underscore the fact that actions have consequences, that taking a stand changes the individual and his or her world forever. Harry can no more deny his destiny and return to the simplicity of innocence and obscurity than Tolkien's Frodo can return to his beloved Shire and live in contented peace after parting with the ring. In The Lord of the Rings, change is underscored in particular with the ebbs and flows of the people of Middle-earth. Elrond and Galadriel support the destruction of the ring, even though they know that this hastens the waning of the elves. Nothing is forever, even, it seems, the immortal. Choice is an even more potent theme, I think. Both J.K. Rowling and J.R.R. Tolkien are preoccupied with what Albus Dumbledore calls a choice between what is right and what is easy. Gandalf cuts to the heart of the crisis in The Lord of the Rings. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Elrond notes to Frodo, It is a heavy burden, so heavy that none could lay it on another. I do not lay it on you. But if you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right. Similarly, Dumbledore considers Harry's decision to deny a possible future in Slytherin House in favor of a more difficult, even dangerous, path as a true Gryffindor, more important than any specific talent or trait. It is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are, far more than our abilities. Therefore, a small hobbit or a young boy can succeed where powerful wizards fail. And now, to the heart of the matter, the theme of death. In a letter to Milton Waldman, written around 1951, J.R.R. Tolkien says, You ask for a brief sketch of my stuff that is connected with my imaginary world. All this stuff is mainly concerned with fall, mortality, and the machine. He put a finer point on it in 1957 in a letter to Christopher and Faith Tolkien. I should say, if asked, the tale is not really about power and dominion. It is about death and the desire for deathlessness. J.K. Rowling said a similar thing in a July 2000 interview with Newsweek. She said, In fact, death and bereavement and what death means, I would say, is one of the central themes in all seven books. The idea plays itself out, particularly clearly, in the clash between Albus Dumbledore and Lord Voldemort. Dumbledore does not fear death. He says, To the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. He implies that deathlessness, ultimately, is not a desirable fate, when he notes that the Philosopher's Stone provided, quote, two things most human beings would choose above all, 
that is, unlimited wealth and life. The trouble is, humans do have a knack of choosing precisely those things that are worst for them. Lord Voldemort, it seems, is one such human. He boasts to his Death Eaters that he has, quote, gone further than anybody along the path that leads to immortality. You know my goal, to conquer death. The two legendary wizards voice their opposing views during their battle in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. There is nothing worse than death, Dumbledore, snarled Voldemort. You are quite wrong, said Dumbledore. Indeed, your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. Here, Dumbledore's words clearly parallel Tolkien's own from a 1959 letter about Lord of the Rings. Death is not an enemy. I said, or meant to say, that the message was the hideous peril of confusing true immortality with limitless serial longevity, freedom from time and clinging to time. The confusion is the work of the enemy and one of the chief causes of human disaster. Rowling's Voldemort, like some of Tolkien's ancient Numenorians, not only fails to understand and appreciate death, but they also seek to cheat it at substantial peril to themselves and their realms. But note that themes such as prejudice, change, choice, and especially death, don't fit necessarily with popular understandings of light-hearted fantasy stories and the small children for whom they must be written. They do fit, however, with Tolkien's theory of the high art and serious purpose of fairy stories. Tolkien's friend, colleague, and fellow Inklings author C.S. Lewis wrote the 1966 essay On Three Ways of Writing for Children, in part to praise and expand upon Tolkien's literary theory. In it, Lewis says, I hope everyone has read Tolkien's essay on fairy tales, which is perhaps the most important contribution to the subject that anyone has yet made. I'll go ahead and second that. Do go read it. He goes on to add his agreement to Tolkien's thesis that, quote, the whole association of fairy tale and fantasy with childhood is local and accidental. This conclusion has significant implications for both camps of critics who take aim at the Harry Potter series. According to Tolkien and Lewis, those who worry about the age appropriateness of the novels and those who argue that adults should not read the works, both are beginning from the wrong premise. By assuming that because the books rest on fantastic premises and include school-age protagonists, they are intended only for youngsters. And what if Rowling's dark, mature themes that might be too much for children? Tolkien responds by saying that it is healthy for children to read some works beyond their measure, that fiction should promote development, offer challenge, and allow youngsters to grow into its style and message. How can there be consolation, the solace and relief of the joyous turn, without fear and danger first? Rowling concurs that ideas such as death have their proper place in the tales. She says, I quote, I don't at all relish the idea of children in tears, and I don't deny it's frightening, but it's supposed to be frightening. And if you don't show how scary that is, you cannot show how incredibly brave Harry is. Without serious, believable peril, then, there is no serious, believable courage. 
Lewis supports Tolkien and anticipates Rowling in his essay. I quote, A far more serious attack on the fairy tale as children's literature comes from those who do not wish children to be frightened, that we must try to keep out of his mind the knowledge that he is born into a world of death, violence, wounds, adventure, heroism, and cowardice, good and evil. This would indeed be to give children a false impression and feed them on escapism in the bad sense. There is something ludicrous in the idea of so educating a generation which is born to the atomic bomb. Since it is so likely that they will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter but darker. I think it is possible that by confining your child to blameless stories of child life in which nothing at all alarming ever happens, you would fail to banish the terrors and would succeed in banishing all that can ennoble them or make them endurable. For in the fairy tales, side by side with the terrible figures, we find the immemorial comforters and protectors, the radiant ones. In other words, losing the terrible Voldemort, losing the violent Death Eaters, losing the tragic deaths of James and Lily Potter and Sirius Black and a whole host of others, also means losing Mrs. Weasley's hand-knitted Christmas sweaters, losing the best seats by the fire in the Gryffindor common room, losing the healing tears and heartening song of Fox the Phoenix, and losing the devoted loyalty of friends in Dumbledore's army. Lewis, restating Tolkien's position, finds this price too great to pay. And what about those critics who remind adults that Harry Potter should be a series for the delight of youngsters, not the dumbing down of grown-ups? Tolkien's own true appreciation of the genre came later in life. He wrote, A real taste for fairy stories was wakened by philology on the threshold of manhood and quickened to full life by war. Tolkien's own life experience with fairy stories informs his argument that this kind of fiction offers even more for the adult reader than the child. Rowling confesses to writing her stories for herself, an adult, as her primary audience. It certainly seems possible that they might appeal to others over the age of 14 as well. Once more, C.S. Lewis in On Three Ways of Writing for Children unites the perspectives of Tolkien and Rowling, framing an answer to meet the most vocal Harry Potter critic. Quote, Critics who treat adult as a term of approval instead of as a merely descriptive term cannot be adult themselves. To be concerned about being grown up, to admire the grown up because it is grown up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish, these things are the marks of childhood and adolescence. And in childhood and adolescence, they are, in moderation, healthy symptoms. Young things ought to want to grow. But to carry on into middle life, or even into early manhood, this concern about being adult is a mark of really arrested development. When I was ten, I read fairy tales in secret, and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I am fifty, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. So, it seems that the primary obstacles to adult enjoyment of fairy stories 
often are the so-called adults themselves. Lewis would say that critic Philip Hinscher's humiliation at reading about pixies reveals much more about Philip Hinscher's unresolved psychological issues than any inherent problem with pixies as a topic. In other words, Lewis's prescription requires the reader and not the subject matter to just go ahead and grow up. And so Lewis, writing from the common ground shared between Tolkien and Rowling, clearly sees Tolkien's solution to Rowling's problem of readership, bring the so-called adult subject matter to the child reader and the adult reader to the so-called children's genre. Like Middle-earth, Hogwarts' school of witchcraft and wizardry has room enough for all within its borders. And with that, I'll say thank you. Amy, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Again, look out for the 2009 The World Science Fiction Convention talk she's going to send over to us as well. And fingers crossed, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but I'm trying to get, because I know, like you say, Amy's going over to World Convention, and Kate Baker's going up there, and I'm trying, I don't know how I'm doing, I'm just putting these ideas out. Get them to come on as guests at the Sofa Notes, like a live kind of Sofa Notes show. Which would be nice, whether I can pull that off or not. You know, whether I can pull it off just sitting here on my chair, let everyone else do the work. So do look out for that. So that is Starship Sova. If you've enjoyed this, now yes, come on again. Let's get the tin can. <laughs> come on, get get your money out now. Putting the hand in the tree around. Do consider that's actually breakfast bowl. <laughs> It's got me rice krispies. <laughs> what a professional. What a, what a guy. But yes, you know, if you would like to donate the Starship Sova, fantastic. That offer now is closed for just donate and you'll get into the sanatorium. But if you want to do, join the sanatorium show. £2.50 a month is a donation. It's like a regular one. Join up. You'll get the kind of private show as well, the sanatorium show where... Basically, that's me just talking about anything about putting together the shows, my feelings, if I'm feeling a bit crap one day. You know, it's everything there. It's like a little private show just to say thank you for everyone who subscribes. And actually, that's the bedrock of keeping Starship Sova up and running. Do you know what I mean? Because you never know when the advertising is going to kind of run up and dry up. But if I know that's there in place, this program will keep on going because, trust us, my enthusiasm for it never seems to win. Do you know what I mean? I don't know what, why that is. Normally, it's not the case. Normally, I kind of hit something and I'm into it, big peak, and then I dip down. This, my enthusiasm for this show, just keeps getting better and better. So if I've got the kind of bedrock underneath of kind of monthly subscribers, it's, this can't, I can't see it ending just yet. Do you know what I mean? And what with everything else going downhill, Starship so far is there, you know? But don't think if you if you don't want to kind of the monthly donation, you know, one-off donation would be fantastic. It means a very great deal to us. So don't forget, join up to Sofa Notes, a fantastic show. Thank you for your support, everyone who listens to the show. Do you know what I mean? It, and even that is, you know, what I mean that's kind of heartwarming. That when I, the figures are going up and up and up, and everyone that's just come on board lately. Fantastic. Right, back to me cereal. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me.
Hera survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.